Welcome to A Gamer's Story. I'm Noah Geekus, avid fan of gaming and gamers alike. Each episode will feature in-depth conversations with gamers from all areas of gaming. Have you ever wondered about the actual gamers themselves? Their motivations? Their home lives? Their quirks? Just how much time they actually spend gaming? And their thoughts on the future of gaming itself? Join me as I ask them just these questions. Are you ready? I'm very excited to welcome our special guest for today's episode of A Gamer Story, William Hunter. William is a video game historian and creator of the Dot Eaters website, which shares the history of video games from early pre-pong systems up until the big video game crash of 1983. For over 15 years, he has used the site to tell the stories of video games, systems, individuals, and gaming companies. The Dot Eater started as a personal passion, but has now become a trusted source of information about the history of video games. William is here today to share his wisdom and what he has learned about video games over the years. So, first of all, I would like to thank our guest, William, for coming on to the show today. Hopefully you're having a good day, and I guess we'll get this started. Are you ready? I'm ready. So, for the audience, tell them what you do in relation to gaming. Right. Well, I've run a website that's dedicated to the history of video games. It's called The Dot Eaters. Uh, I started in 1998, so I've been at it for a while. And it covers the history of video games from systems that were even before Pong up until around the Nintendo Entertainment System. So it covers that period, the early history of video games is what I call it. Mm, interesting. I actually like retro games and newer games, like because my family, well, specifically my dad, he played a lot of older games, and he, I have a lot of fun. Like I have a, a t- Atari like little system in my room that lets you play games on your TV, and uh, we used to play like games like Combat with like the little tanks. It was right. A ton of fun. Ton yeah. Yep. Yeah. That was the first game you always played when you got the Atari because it came with the system Combat. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, that was the one we really loved because we would just sit in my room and we were just playing, playing, playing. And it was like, ah, what? like one of us had just won or, or lost. And we're like, okay, one more game before we go to bed. <laughs> right. And there's always a lot of options with those Atari games. So even with combat, you can make it so the bullets bounce around or you're invisible until you shoot. And then you don't see the other person until they're like right on top of you shooting you. So there's always a lot of variations that they so they keep the game interesting yeah as far as the atari goes i have a lot of fun with it so can you tell us how you got started in gaming yeah well the site came about because back then i it was kind of a combination of two things i watched a a documentary about the history of computers called it's called uh, triumph of the nerds it was on pbs and they did they did two installments of it one was the history of how computers came about and then the second one which is the one i watched first was nerds 2.0 i think they call it and it was about the rise of the internet at the time so there was i don't even know if there was google yet but there was like yahoo and excite and there's all these other online services and search engines you probably don't remember but they've come and gone since but i watched that and it was really a great documentary just sort of really bringing history alive and then at the same time I was playing, uh, I discovered an emulator called MAME, which uh, lets Mm. you play all, at the time, it was hundreds of classic arcade games. By now, I think it's thousands that it emulates. And so I was 
getting back into playing like Pac-Man and Donkey Kong and Defender and, you know, all those great old games. And the two kind of coalesced playing these old games. And then what was the history of them? How did they come about? Who made these games? And when I went online to look, I didn't really find an online history of video games sort of in the way that I wanted to read it. So I decided, well, I'll just make one myself. And that's how it started. Wow. Definitely just taking the initiative there. Mm. Just just made your own. Like that that's something that's very hard to do. Some people think like, oh, there's something that hasn't existed yet, but I'll just wait for someone to make it or just wait for someone else to do it. You just went straight ahead and just did it. Right. That's awesome. Well there was uh I think there was really only one online history of video games that really had any kind of breadth. It was, I think the URL was videogames.org and it was done by a guy named Greg Chance. And I read his, what he had, but it really didn't sort of bring the history alive, kind of like what I wanted to read. Just in the same way that Robert Cringely kind of had brought the history of computers and the history of the internet alive. So there was one or two sites at the time, but just I felt like maybe I could do it in a different way. So I went ahead and tried. Yeah. And I mean, from what I've heard, you've done very, very well. So Thank you. I mean, so what made you decide to start um, compelling gaming history? And did you have any help? No, I'm a kind of a one-man operation. I research all the stuff myself. I compile all the, all the graphics. I make all the videos that kind of highlight what I'm talking about. So I don't really have any help. It's all just me. And uh, like I said, just when I, when I started, I was a little worried that there's a lot of different ways to research something. It's you, you know, I go online, I go at all the resources I have online. I have a whole bunch of books about the history of video games that I kind of look for references. And then the real scary part is to actually try to get in touch with all these creators who made all this stuff. So, you know, you always think, You'll reach out and try to get someone to talk to you, you know, give me the history of uh, how this came about, what you made. And I find that the vast majority of people will be more than happy to talk about what they've made and give you some insight in it. And then, you know, you'll ask, do you have any other connections that I could probably get in touch with? And they're happy to give you other names that you can then follow down that path and find even more information. So when I started talking to these people and they were very forthcoming for information, it really helped helped me along with thinking what I was doing was, you know, it was good work. It was, you know, I'll say it's important work. And uh, so it really gave me an impetus to like keep going with it. Just the great cooperation I had from some of these people who helped create video game history. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a great little community because mm-hmm. I think that also in like my podcasting experience, I've had people who have helped me find other people. And, and I think that it really helps me out. I can kind of make a little chain and hopefully like just keep going. Right. So obviously you run a website called The Dot mm-hmm. Eaters, but how did you come up with that? Right. Name? Well, um, the name itself is a reference that I read in Electronic Games Magazine. It was a monthly magazine that came out. I think it started in 1981. And I used to go run to the drugstore every month and get the issue of it because it really was the premier magazine that you'd use to f- to follow, like, you know, all the n- new games for the Atari, all the new games for the Intellivision. And I'd scour it and it would be in rags by the time I was done reading it. It was uh, such a great magazine so in the magazine in electronic art sorry electronic arts almost said in electronic 
Games Magazine, they whenever they referenced Pac-Man, they'd always call him the Dot Eater. And it started. they started to use it as kind of a term for any game that was a maze game where you ate things like Pac-Man was the first one. And then, you know, there's Ladybug and, you know, a whole bunch of other games like that. And they'd all call them Dot Eater games. And so when I came up with the t- title of the site, I just kind of remembered that term. They would use the Dot Eaters and it's got kind of a, I don't know, kind of an epic has an epic sound to me, the Dot Eaters. It's like some kind of like, you know, some novel that would be called that, the Dot Eaters. So that's kind of, I kind of took that term and it sounded good to me. So that's what I called the site. Yeah, I actually really like that name. And I think that it has a backstory and that's mm-hmm. always nice. Like, I mean, people who just have like random names, that's fine. Like if it's catchy or something, but I feel like names that have a backstory that you can kind of dig into is actually very right. nice. And with the magazine, I can totally get where you're coming from. Electronic Games was the first magazine I started reading like that, but there were others that that popped up, and that was the way you got your information. I remember Nintendo Power was always an exciting magazine to get to tell you all the stuff about Nintendo and the latest games. And of course, you can't believe the reviews because it's Nintendo. So you know, I don't know they ever give a bad review of a Nintendo game, but still, it was a good way of seeing screenshots and just hearing what the game was about. That's how you did it. But you know what? It gives some interactivity to it. And you also get to like look at the actual magazine itself, see what's new, new right, strategies. Sure. Again, yeah, like tips tips and cheats and stuff like running. that. You know, you you never knew it until you read it in the magazine. Oh yeah, cheats. You could right. use a cheat or something, but it, it's not like it's common. Like usually when you're playing through a game or even when you finish a game, you haven't used a cheat right. any of the way through. Unfortunately, cheats like nowadays, it's less It's a less of a nice thing. Because when you're playing by yourself in a single player game, sure, cheat, right? Like sometimes I don't have the time to like really, you know, figure out how the game works. I'll do some cheats. But online now, it's going to be kind of a scourge where if you're on, if you're playing Call of Duty or something and someone's, you know, got a wall hack or whatever, right? They're doing, they're cheating in that way. It's really ruins the fun for everybody. And, you know, that I can't abide by. But if you're just by yourself playing a single player game, then, you know, I don't see any problems with it. Oh, yeah, definitely. But um, cheating in like multiplayer lobbies and stuff, that's how you get banned. I mean, like, Banning banning people back in the day wasn't as common, but like if you, if if someone's playing like COD, Fortnite, PUBG, whatever you like a first person shooter, and they're like shooting through walls, hitting their target yeah, every or single time, or whatever, right? like yeah. you can expect, yeah, yep, you can expect that this that the second someone dies, they're yeah, going to be yeah, like yeah, report, sure. report. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's good. I, like cheating. I said, I don't think it's good. And I mean, you know, I played lots of shooter games where it's just been ruined. Right. Like you can tell that the people, too many people have an unfair advantage. Anyway, can you tell us a little about the history of the first yeah, game? Yeah, for sure. Pong really, you know, it wasn't the very first video game. Like I say on my site, I have a pre-Pong section, which deals with some systems that they, you know, that scientists came up with where you can play games on an oscilloscope or whatever. But Pong was really the first it was the game that created the industry, not the not the idea of a video game, but created the entire industry just in the fact that it sold so much. It was a huge hit for Atari. It was their first game that they came out with in 1972. And, you know, it started selling like crazy. And the funny thing is that Pong itself, Pong games might have sold like 
maybe 200, 300,000 units, you know, cabinets when they first came out. Atari was only responsible for maybe like less than a third of those sales. They were slow at getting the system copyrighted, the whole game concept and everything copyrighted. So everybody rushed in making Pong games. And, you know, I've got, I've read magazines like uh, Replay and Cashbox. They're all like trade magazines at the time that talk about, you know, coin-op games. And when video games came in, they started covering Pong. And there's, you know, they'll do a, a year end of the year, like, what are the games that were sold? And like, you know, there's like five or six pages all full of Pong type games, like not made by Atari, but just people that put a little spin on the Pong concept and came out with it. And some companies made like in 1973, they made like six different versions of Pong that they all were able to sell because so many people were buying this cabinet to put in like their bowling alley or the pool hall or Pong even transcended, you know, traditional areas that would have video games and they'd be in supermarkets and then the lobbies of restaurants. And, you know, it really broke big as a new entertainment genre. And then it was so successful atari was able to build and make sort of newer type games like grand track a racing game and and gotcha and other games that sold pretty well and really put video games on the map so that's really how the whole industry started was the success of pong yeah and when you're talking about how people would buy cabinets to put in different places especially in restaurants I actually go to this place called Chimney Rock with my dad every once in a while. And it still has like a Soul Calibur 4 machine. And we love to go there and just play for like for like half right. an hour. So mm-hmm. moving on, what made you decide to like distribute? Well, like I said, I didn't really see the story of video games told in the way that I really wanted to read myself. So I had done some research and it's interesting the stories of these games it's interesting how they came about it's interesting in a financial way just to see companies that you know atari itself was in the early 80s in 80 81 82 it was the fastest growing company in american history it had gotten to like 20 30 million in just a few years in sales by the time it was picked up by warner brothers And it's interesting to me, you know, researching the games and then just seeing, I get a kind of a education in finances, like, or in running a business because Atari was started by Nolan Bushnell and all his friends who are all engineers. They were like hardcore nerd engineers and they just wanted to do something different. They wanted to create something cool that, you know, people would appreciate and they weren't really savvy businessmen. So when they got to a certain size, you know, we need to, Nolan Bushnell himself said, you know, we have to innovate to stay ahead. So in order to do that, in order to do the R&D and come up with a new technology that'll, you know, move video games to the next level, they needed a lot of money. So it's interesting to me, does a company always have to like sell its soul to to get to the next level? There's always a feeling that you've got to progress. You've got to create more. The more games you create, the more you'll be selling and the more money you'll make. And in order to make those games, you have to bring in money from other sources to finance it. And then while you're, when you're doing that, you're handing the control of the company over to people that don't share your same kind of uh, enthusiasm about the technology. They just want to market and make money. So it's, 
as I was researching these these uh, companies and the games, I started to see other avenues that were interesting to me. So I really felt a need to to put that down on record that people can read and just sort of learn about the games and get a kind of an education about how company evolve and you know it doesn't always have to be that a company expands itself into oblivion so i don't know it's just kind of i found a lot of different facets that interested me and then i wanted to tell that story to other people and hopefully they found it interesting i like how you think about how like companies Hmm. feel the need to expand 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 but i think like some companies just know when to stop it and i think like for example in the first Crash Bandicoot yep. games. Yep. There was a company called Naughty yep, Dog that them. produced yep. them, and I'm sh- you may or may not know this, but and they stopped at the third game. Well, they had one racing game and mm-hmm. three main mainline games, and they just stopped. <laughs> they were like, "We don't need to produce any more of these. It's done what it needed to do." And the fourth game came out, uh, not that good. Fifth game came out, uh, not that good. They tried to make a party game, didn't work. They tried to make all these different types of games, and then now they, it comes back from a completely different like people right but i just think that's a perfect example of just just like everyone feels the need of spiraling games out and out and and just creating more and more but like sometimes that can be bad and like they knew exactly where to stop right they took their three games and they're like okay we're out well interesting (laughs) uh case study is perfectly uh, is activision and maybe even electronic arts where you know electronic arts started with a real noble there was a noble core of why that company was created right it was created it was founded by trip hawkins he wanted to elevate video games right it sounds almost naively stupid <laughs> to like have that kind of attitude but in in the burgeoning days of computer software his idea was just he's going to bring in people the these creative people like Dan Bunton, who made Mule, John Freeman and Ann Westfall, who did Archon and Adept, Bill Budge, who did uh, Pinball Construction Set, like these great creatives who, you know, EA was almost like a think tank. Uh, sorry, not a think tank, but like an incubator. It would take these developers. Okay, you've got these great games. You don't have to worry about marketing. You don't have to worry about the production side of it. You don't have to like, you know, rent a factory and make the game yourself. You know, we'll do all that. We'll make the manuals. All you have to do is make great games. And so he brought them in. He paid them, you know, an advance against the royalties, which was something that they'd never uh, tried in video games. He made them into stars. He put them into magazines. You know, Bill Budge himself went around like a rock star to like computer stores, you know, signing autographs. And he'd be thronged by people that wanted to see who had created their favorite games. And uh, the same with Dan Bunton. And so they started off in such a noble way and then just... It's like the famous phrase from Batman, uh, from the latest Batman movies is, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And that's what happened with EA and Activision. Activision was the same way. It had a noble beginning too. It was founded by a bunch of programmers at Atari who one day realized that they were making, you know, 60% of the profits for Atari who had or is posting a hundred million dollars in sales and like they're getting paid 30 grand a year to make these games. So when they went to the boss and said, Hey, you know, we need some more compensation for what we're bringing to this company. And he said, no, you're like the guys putting the cartridges together on the factory floor. 
that's you're as important as them. And they're like, nope. And they all like, not all of them, but four of the big top programmers at Atari all left and founded Activision. And their goal was, you know, we're tired of toiling away at like anonymous surfs. We want to have some recognition and a piece of the company. So that's what they did with Activision. They put the name the like David Crane, they put his picture on the cover of pin of uh, pitfall and, you know, Bob Whitehead was put on his games and Gary Kitchen, the Kitchen Brothers, they all had their pictures on the box. They had a bio, you know, it was very, you know, when you design a game for Atari, it was an Atari product. It wasn't a product that was of a person. It was more of the company itself. So Activision put the names of the creators on it. And just like EA, they elevated the nature of video games, but then they just went so long that they just became kind of like a corporate entity. There's so much money involved. You know, all the creatives that had started the company were all muscled out and all the marketing people, all the suits are brought in. And then it just kind of doesn't mean the same thing. It's not as creative. The games aren't as creative as they were. Nowadays, Activision is just the Call of Duty company. And EA is like, I don't know, EA Sports and then maybe Battlefield. They just sort of lose their creative edge and they just become money machines. So... Yeah, very true. Like, and there's a ton of like microtransactions, like where they right. get, get you to like buy like certain things in the game that will give you an edge over others. When it comes mm. to Activision, I like mm-hmm. to use like Skylanders as a kind of example of what you're talking about. Because yep. that was so long running. It was great. It's been year after year. They've been consistently putting out yep. a game and they've been getting fairly good sales results. But by the end of it, they had microtransactions. They had this this game that just really had it had effort, but it just right. wasn't it just wasn't what it used to be. There's a ton of people in like the Skylanders community who would have just who are still waiting and and would be super excited to just buy a new Skylanders game, pull out all their old Skylanders that aren't worth anything now, and just like play but it's been so corrupted they just cut it for years we're literally in the fifth year of just people waiting sitting quietly for well it's interesting you mentioned skylanders because there's this there was this controversy recently about toys for bob who are the people that created skylanders for ea founded by paul reish and fred ford are the guys that founded toys for bob and you know, they're, they're a super creative company. They started with EA, not as Toys for Bob, but they were Paul Reich was one of the programmers with Freefall who did Archon and Archon Adept and Mail Order Monsters, which is an interesting, you know, maybe a precursor to Skylanders where you've got, you know, different creatures. But, you know, Toys for Bob, just recently there was a, I guess an e- email had leaked or something with EA where they were all told, I think it was pretty much every developer that's under EA's purview is now just all turned over to make new Call of Duty games. All those development companies, like every single one, is just instead of looking at, you know, nurturing EIPs like Skylanders or, you know, Crash Bandicoot or whatever, all those, you know, different kind of creative games are all just turn, turn them around and just start making, you know, Call of Duty. Just turn it all to Call of Duty. You're the Call of Duty company. That's not good. 
Yeah, that's unfortunate because generally I think mm-hmm. the, the Skylanders games were very well received, even to the end, and they still are now. And then like games like the new the new Crash Bandicoot number four was also very well received. Mm-hmm. People loved it. People loved the new mask thing they implemented. People loved the fact right. that they went back in time and did older levels like uh, Cortex's Castle. I have not played other than like in the Insane trilogy any of the original games. Like I haven't gotten out like an old console play. But I still like can feel <laughs> right. like everybody else's nostalgia just radiating off of the game. Just new people, like different like different spins on old things. They made puns, like gestures back to like the old forgotten games. Like there was like a joke about like how many times right. have you beaten Cortex again? Like three? Really? I thought there was more, right? Like because like all the forgotten games that that were they have beaten Cortex. I think it was great. I think the voice acting mm-hmm. was good. I think ton of stuff that I just loved in that game. And it was like the first thing I bought when I got my new PS5. I was like, okay, right. what am I going to get? Crash Bandicoot game just came out. Boom, buying it. And I, and I just had great time on it. I just feel like it's it's nurtured those IPs. Yeah, like you, you know, get your big brains in the company looking into new twists, you know, new ways of playing, pay homage to the history of the franchise and, and also push it forward. You know, that's what those guys are paid for. You know, they could do that thing. They could they could make it happen. It's just unfortunate that the company is just there's a cash cow there and they're going to milk that cash cow. Oh, yeah, definitely. With companies like EA and stuff, they definitely have like a ton of microtransactions and stuff and just have completely sold out. Like it's gone from like nice, great company who produces fun and good games to where it's like, all right, yeah. we're producing Madden, yeah. tiny, um, tiny, FIFA, itera- yeah, tiny like, iterations, whatever every else, year, we just can tiniest produce. little iterations. And we're just gonna throw, fun. yep, yeah, and it just barely mm. changes. You can tell the difference between fourteen and like twenty-one. Right, right. Basically, it's only like the graphics and like the characters. <laughs> the gameplay doesn't change. You could probably take right. fourteen and twenty-one and, ha- and have the same controls, like same fluidity, and just be like that. And they just <laughs> pack it with microtransactions yeah. like here you want this loot box okay it costs five dollars per <laughs> loot box and then everyone's like loot box for five dollars what a steal and they just put like well, yeah. they just insert their credit card in and then like right. until it's broke until what's well, funny looking over the history of, uh, of games right like i mean like i can remember in the 90s you know nine i think it started happening around late 90s i think you you know when they started to bring in dlc Right. And it was, it was controversy. Like I remember, well, I, I don't know if it really had anything to do with DLC, but I remember there was such a huge controversy over Deus Ex Machina. What was it called? I can't remember. Yeah. It was like, or Invisible War was, was the one I'm thinking about. Deus, Deus Ex, Ex Invisible War, right? It was like dumbed down for consoles and the PC people just went nuts. Like, oh my God, this Deus Ex is like a vaunted computer game for computers. And they just, they've dumbed it down for consoles. And then DLC coming in. I remember for Oblivion, Bethesda came out with the horse armor. It was like, it's, it's, it's become a kind of a meme now that you could download horse armor and the people were furious because you start to suspect that the companies you know, if they start to rely on DLC, then what they'll do is they'll design a game, they'll break it on purpose, they'll withhold the part that will fix it, and then in order to fix it, you have to download the fix for it, right? Or the parts of the game, you know, parts of the game that were all created, and then they pull pieces out of it and then sell that as DLC. It's I can remember just when it was incredibly suspect, and now it's common operation. It's MO. It's their MO. It's their method of operation now is just 
to have you have to pay to fix the game that they've broken on purpose. Yeah, and I mean, I know DLCs mm. where it's not like we've held something off from you, we're just giving you more. But also then there's those games that are just like, all right, we have held something off from you, but do you want to pay for more? And and most likely the answer will be yes, because right. you like the game and you want yeah. to make it yeah. better, but you know what they're doing to you, but you're like, well, what can That's I do? True. I've already paid for this game. Why not throw another $15 into the hole just to get it better, right? Yeah, yeah. well, so on a lighter I had to note, break this down into the categories because I can't really just say one across the board, but when it comes to arcade games, my favorite arcade game is Elevator Action because it just it's a game that came out it was made by Taito in uh, 1983 and it's you're a little guy that's uh, starting at the top of this building and uh, you're a spy or whatever you're trying to get to the bottom of your car so you can like drive away and there's all these elevators going up and down and there's doors where the enemy will pop out and they'll try to shoot you I remember just playing that game in the arcade and it's just one of those games where it's a perfect balance between having skill, being at, you know, learning the game and being skillful at playing it. And then there's just these close shaves where, you know, you're running along and there's a a guy pops out and you got to jump and kick him at the same time and avoid his bullets. And then you got to go into the elevator and try to go down and then it only goes a certain way. So you got to get out and risk yourself again, getting shot. And there's just a beautiful balance between having the skill to play it and then just being lucky, you know, I just playing that it's one of those games where you get in a groove and when you're doing well, it's just, you're not even thinking you're just doing everything. You got to do crazy moves, jumping across and, and, and ducking and try not to get shot. It's just, you get in a zone and it just feels so good when it, when it's working. And if you just keep dying, you're incredibly frustrated, but it's not because the game has screwed you. It's because you didn't do something right. Right. When it comes to computer games, I always have to say that my favorite is Mule by EA. It's, uh, again, from 1983, and it's a game that I mentioned, Dan Bunton, who eventually became Danny Buntonberry. But it's a great game where, again, you kind of learn something because in Mule, you're trying to, you're three, you can play, it's always four players, but you can play up to three people in front of the computer, which was kind of special at the time. I remember all my friends coming over after school. We'd all crowd in front of my Commodore 64. We'd have two joysticks and then two guys on either side of the keyboard all controlling their characters. And it's four at once on the screen. And you're just trying to establish a settlement on a distant planet. And you've got to grow crops. You've got to generate energy that everyone's going to use. And then you can mine for minerals that their prices go up and down. And the whole thing is a brilliant education in supply and demand and, and, you know, financial systems. And you, you know, you're, you're learning something while you're screaming and yelling at each other and like stabbing each other in the back and like trying to corner the market and some good that everyone else has got to pay through the teeth for you. And so mule would be my favorite computer game. And when it comes to console games, I have to say my choice is a kind of a modern game and it's red dead redemption Two by Rockstar because it's just, and it's transformative. Like it's, it's transcending that game. It's tells a great story in multiplayer. And then they did a great online portion of it too, where it's just, you're con- you know, they're constantly adding to it. The nice thing about Rockstar is they don't really deal in uh, DLCs, So they just add stuff, you know, they add new occupations you can do in that game, you know, and it's, it's fun to play. They keep it interesting by adding content and then it's gorgeous to look at. Like 
the graphics are phenomenal. Like you're just riding in your horse and there's a mountain vista and there's a river running mm -hmm. through it. And it just always made me, you know, when I play Red Dead Redemption 2, I kind of get a flashback to when I used to play Battlezone and you'd, you'd be driving in your tank and in the, in the distance, there's these little mountains that are drawn out of lines and you're like, you're trying to drive your tank and you always wonder, can I drive my tank to those mountains? Can I drive up in those mountains and see what it's like? And of course you can't, but you have Red Dead Redemption and you look at the mountains and then ride up them if you want, you know, ride your horse up to the top of them. You can do it. So it's just a, a beautiful open world game, great graphics, and uh, always they're adding content. So you're never bored with it. Yeah, when you're talking about Red Dead, I was like, yeah. oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah, because the graphics are just beautiful. It makes you, remi <laughs> exactly. it reminds you of real life. And then, like, yep. you look outside and you're like, wait, no, I want to stay in. <laughs> this is like, it's like, it's that accurate. <laughs> you're like, hold on. That's right. Why am I thinking of outside when I'm trying to stay inside? Yeah. It's like, it, it's that beautiful. And I think, like, the voice acting is great, graphics are yep. great. I feel like everything about that game is just so good. And Rockstar did a great yeah, job. Yeah, it takes, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's uh, not easy to like, do. To and follow they did a up great on it, they did a great first game as well. That They did really well. Yeah, so I, I appreciate your opinions on that, but because I think that you have, you have a very good idea, especially like when you can play with your friends. I feel like that's a great feeling, and I feel like a lot of games try to do that, even when they're like more yeah. based around like single player. Like they try, they try to get everyone in. So anyway, <laughs> so mm. my dad told me that if a game right. didn't work, he would blow into the cartridge to clear out all the dust. Right. Is that actually well, I do have do um, do you have any a lot of old of, systems like, myself. Old uh, I don't know if you can see them over my shoulder here. I got an old Sony Trinitron that I hook hook them up to, but I've got a uh, I got an NES. I have the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Mm -hmm. I have the Intellivision. I have the ColecoVision. I have a Odyssey Two. I even have an old Channel F, which was uh, a system that introduced cartridges to video games because all the games before that were hardwired, so they play Pong. That's all you do. You you could have a switch where you might play with four paddles or you just put two paddles or you'd bat it up against the wall and just play single player. But uh, Channel F introduced the idea of unlimited games because you just buy the cartridge and you can add a new game to it. So I got a Channel F. Unfortunately, it's not working. But when it comes to NES, it's interesting because that's an old myth that if you blew into the cartridge, it will work. But what actually went on with the Nintendo is when Nintendo wanted to introduce the NES to the North American market, at the, at the time, the great video game crash uh, had happened. And I highlighted in my, I have a huge article on my site about it. Cause to me, it's such a fascinating, it's such a fascinating instance where video games collapsed and they were gone, right? Just imagine a couple of years before, like 82, 83, the video games were at their height. It was the golden age of video games where you had Atari coming out with new systems you had the ColecoVision, which was an amazing console that kind of added, you know, gave a kickstart to the whole idea of video games. It was, it was a next generation of video games. And all of a sudden, just everyone left the market. It just, you know, Atari stumbled a little bit with some finances. They had some high concept fail, high profile failures like ET and their version of Pac-Man for the home was a real creative disaster. So just once Atari faltered, the whole everyone said, "Well, that's it for video games," and everyone laughed. And there was really nothing left in North America. So when Nintendo wanted to bring in the NES, they were 
trying to sell their system in a market that really didn't want a new video game. When they went to CES to uh, try to sell department stores on picking up the, the NES, they're all like, you're crazy. You guys are crazy trying to introduce a video game. Video games are over. And so what Nintendo wanted to do was they wanted to distance themselves from the idea that they were selling a video game. So they did a couple of different things. One was they marketed the NES with Rob the Robot. So they had a little toy robot with little hands that would like, you could play a game along with it and it would help you by dropping weights on a like a little joystick Mm. thing and it would move stuff in the game to help you. So it was almost like at the time Teddy Ruxpin was big. Other robots, uh, little toy robots were really big at the time. So Nintendo kind of bundled theirs with one. So like, you know, what video game? This is a, you know, it's a robot toy. And the other thing was they built the NES so that it wasn't, didn't look like a, a box where you inserted just a cartridge into the top like a video game. They made it look more like a VCR where you flip up the lid in the front, slide the cartridge in and then push down on it like you're inserting a video cassette. Cause, course in 84 85 86 you know vhs videotape machines were big sellers so that's the reason why that happened where you end up having people would blow into the cartridge to think it would work because to slide that cartridge into the nes you just sort of it's called a zero insertion force connector where it doesn't really click it just kind of slides in and then you push down. There's a spring action where you push the thing, the cartridge down into it and then it would work. And that action of moving it up and down caused the leads to kind of fail on the cartridge slot. So that's why you'd insert the cartridge and Nintendo had an interesting uh, solution to, to the video game crash. They, you know, they rightly pointed out that one of the reasons why the video game crash happened was because when Atari when the Atari 2600 got really successful, everybody and their dog rushed into the market selling crap, right? Like ter- terrible, terrible games. The shovelware, right? They just kept, just flooded the market to try to uh, capitalize on the success of the Atari. And then it, it just sort of collapsed under its own weight of, of awfulness. So Nintendo, were, they put in a chip in the NES and then a chip into their cartridge so that if you didn't, run your game past Nintendo, you didn't get that Nintendo seal of approval. If you you put the cartridge into the machine, it wouldn't work. It didn't have that connection between the chip, the lockout chip on the NES and the lockout chip in the um, cartridge. They had to communicate. So the motion of putting regular official games into the NES, it caused that connection to fail. The connectors failed so it couldn't handshake between the console and the cartridge. And that's why sometimes you put in and it wouldn't work. So people got the idea you could, it's dust on the contact. So you'd blow on it, but it really was just a failure inside of the slot that caused that to happen. That's right. Eventually so, uh, companies so uh, got around that. Atari themselves, I think, had a company NSCS called Tengen. With, with, they reverse engineered the NES. They found out how that information was being transmitted and they got around it. And then, of course, there was a bunch of lawsuits over it. But I think uh, eventually Atari just paid the license and then was an official supplier of games for the NES because it was like it was a license to print money. That's the beautiful thing about the NES. Nintendo had the chutzpah to like enter a console into a market that totally was rejecting video games and became so popular that the NES single-handedly, you know, 
brought back the video game industry to the point now we're like a 10, $20 billion industry and Nintendo helped save that. At the time it had collapsed, but the success of the NES helped bring back video games. So, you know, they definitely deserve kudos for that. Yep. That's incredible. I mean, to revive the dead market, that's very, very hard. I mean, I also see like certain games trying to do this. Back when I'm, I know I'm going yep. back to Skyland to this, but like Toys to Life era, which was like yeah. in, I saw it four, five, six years maybe. Lego Dimensions just plopped in at straight tail end of it. They came in at the exact moment where the market was yep. failing. They tried to bring it back up, and I, I I bought a Lego Dimension set, like just saying. But I feel yeah. like it didn't work too well. Yeah. And What's inter- like was the it, next year, or like yeah, it was an interesting years, uh, way of yeah, cut. interesting so, way of trying to revive the, the industry and, and you know, kind of combine like, collecting dolls and figurines with video games, right? And just the different dolls you'd get, you'd connect to the system, and then you'd have new characters to play in the game. It was an interesting idea, and Skylanders definitely was all about that. Yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah, definitely. And then Nintendo I mean, they and did really well with that, though. Their figures looked nice. And so, so did Disney Infinity, actually. Their, figu- their figures looked really, really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people tried that mm. market. And I feel like uh, Amiibos are still going now, but usually people don't. It wasn't as big as Skylanders mm-hmm. was on release. Yep. And it, it still isn't like a hot commodity right. now. You could probably find them for like a few bucks online, right? Not, not like a crazy amount. So, right. like, why do you think people? Well, one thing you really it's like, like, even uh, though get to understand when you look at classic video them? retro video games is since they all had really blocky graphics, it's the gameplay that really makes a game sink or swim, right? And what's really interesting, again, mm-hmm. uh, if you're studying the whole history of video games, is you know you had games like the Atari, and then. You had a slow, you know, a pretty steady progression up through all these different systems like uh, Xbox and PlayStation, and, you know, GameCube and all that. And then you get into modern times. And what's happening, you know, in the, over the last 10 years is we're all going back to kind of the retro style, right? Like with mobile games. So games on your phone that couldn't handle the kind of high graphics that you were getting on the platforms like PlayStation or Xbox you suddenly start to get games that have that uh, retro game aesthetic. And the thing that really sells those games is the gameplay. It's neat twists on how you do it and just clever ways of having the gameplay really entertaining. And, but still, you know, it's not the graphics that are selling it. It's how much fun you're having playing it and how interesting it is and how they twist and turn with the gameplay. So I think that's uh, something that, you know, people have learned and were able to utilize when it came to mobile gaming. But, I mean, just the fact that you can, like, get some of those games right. and just not to be on the machine, it's just it just goes to show how much, like, power the mobile phone has compared to, like, an older thing, right? And now, you know, the the thing you carry around in your pocket, you know, has, you know, however, how, however many hundreds of thousands of times the the processing power and it's all in your phone all in your pocket right and up in the satellites also yeah i mean i right. i think that it's it's so interesting how much not only the video games but the tech around them have evolved just it's insane and taking a look at that chasm between pong which is two paddles and a ball to red dead redemption 2 
right? They're both in the same, they're both in the same entertainment genre. They're both the same thing. They're both video games, but that chasm between the two of them like, is, yeah. is almost incalculable. So that's what I'm trying to do when I look at it is just calculate the, you know, the progression between paddles and a ball and Red Dead Redemption 2. Although I, of course, I haven't gotten that far in the, in my history on the website where I'm reaching, you know, like PlayStation level stuff, but you know, hopefully eventually I'll get there. Yep. Yeah, because and I also like to like talk a lot about like remakes. Right. So like like Ratchet and Clank, like yep. the OG Ratchet and Clank, just got uh, got remaked in uh, 2016, and just got the new game mm-hmm. called uh, Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart. But I think like the difference in that is exponential. Like if you just look at the graphics of the old game, it's like blocky, choppy. And in, like the new game is in the newer right. games are just like whoa it's just like oh my gosh it's just like crazy how much like how much graphics can like change something or like controls can change like one good example is so you know, the original different. Castle Wolfenstein so or or Quake or Doom and in Doom you're running around and you got these you got the figures they're all running around with you and you go up to them and you and you move around them they're flat. So they're just like a flat piece of paper and they kind of look at you. So you're only ever looking at the front part. And it's like such a jump between sprites like that until games nowadays where it's all 3D, real world. Everything's everything's real. Everything's a piece. Everything's a thing. It's not just a flat plane that you're looking at, but it's, oh, you're surrounded by real things. It's pretty cool. Yeah, but it's also crazy how early on we made this switch, mm. right? For like, for like a quite a quite a, a little bit but like right. not too much it, we were stuck in 2d and then like just a quick jump and now we're in 3d and then that changes games forever and then you got these fighting games who are doing like 2.5 right, right. where like you're right. they're on a two, 2d plane but like have like cut scenes <laughs> right. and like well, match p- cuts where they're like actually that's right that's well i guess well, the playstation really like, you know, I don't they, even know how there were th- 3D that. games like, before, even on the uh, it just goes directly over even that. on the SNES. Like with, I remember uh, Donkey Kong Country was like, whoa, this is amazing. The graphics, and I remember I'll never forget. I went into a Blockbuster, which is you know dating myself, mm-hmm. and I went into a Blockbuster, and they had the N64 on display. They just got it. And I remember walking up to it and playing Mario 64. And I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Like, holy crap, the graphics. The, so you were all, Mario was 3D and he's running around and everything is like all 3D. I was like, this is amazing. I've never seen anything like this. I'm like, graphics are never going to get better than this. You know? Yep. <laughs> yeah i mean like now it is literally yeah. last day of school like just passed like this thursday right and like we're just having fun like on our computers doing whatever but yep. i but we kind of walk around this classroom like because i'm kind of bored and doing whatever and we have nothing to do and i don't know but and i pass by my friend's computer and i'm <laughs> watching him play an emulator on these yeah. chromebooks which by the way are guarded by like this like secure robot thing which isn't doing a very good job because he's because he's playing an emulator of mario 64 and i'm sitting over here like <laughs> yeah. wait a minute yeah. what? it's like big things like things that used to have a big space on something and right. that just got moved over into the small little thing on on a yeah. list of games that barely take up any space in your computer yep i just find insane i just find that incredible and and i mean it's just mm-hmm. yeah. it's just how much you've evolved like i said he's got the mm-hmm. first oculus i think the second one is a slightly improved uh, resolution in it but even the reg- original oculus 
just the way they do it, like it's very smooth. They're really concentrated on making it a very smooth frame rate while you're looking around. And it's just astounding. I, you know, VR has been around since the maybe mid eighties, late eighties. And it's never really, I've never really found it all that compelling, but putting on the Oculus, I'm like, oh my God, this is the next step of playing video games. And, um, so I've, I'm pretty sure that VR is going to be a big part of it. The only problem with VR is that you're just putting on a helmet and you're, you're removed from any kind of connection. You can play online with other people in certain games, but you're, you know, in the room, it's just closing you off. So I really feel that, you know, I always use the holodeck from the next generation as, as really the logical direction in which video games are going to go where you don't need the helmet. You know, they're able to, to project the world around you and you just walk around in it, you know, like, and you know, that's going to be the steps. That's the way we're going. We're a long way from that. But I think something like the Oculus where you just put it on and it's almost like entering the holodeck. And I, it's funny when I'm using mm-hmm. the, I use the Oculus. I like playing, there's some golf games I've down, downloaded with it. You know, there's uh valve made a really great VR game based in the half-life world called half-life Alex. And it's amazing to play a shooter where you're all surrounded by it. So I'll play these games and then I always have to be careful. When I first got it, I wasn't careful. I'd just pull the helmet up and I'd be Mm -hmm. shocked that I was in real life. You know, I was in a world and then all of a sudden the world stripped away from me. Like, oh, 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 I got to like decompress, right? Like I got to, I got to acclimate myself to where my surroundings now. And just that it's that immersive is it's amazingly compelling. And I'm pretty sure that's, you know, we just have to keep refining VR. So eventually they can get rid of the helmet and just you, you're in the world and you're in the holodeck. That's really, I think where video games are going. Hmm. Oh yeah, definitely. Because I love watching YouTube videos and stuff. I don't have an Oculus for myself, which I wish I did, but I love watching YouTube. So I've definitely seen videos and there's this thing called Richie's plank experience. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. so it's a, it's a VR game, and basically you go up on this elevator, and there's different levels. So when people fall off, and this and it's super funny to see, but I but right. it was a bigger takeaway for yep. me is the fact that I can genuinely sense that they are fearing that they are that they're falling. It's what we were talking about, where you know Red Dead Redemption has great graphics, but really what it all boils down to is mm-hmm. gameplay, yep. and Super Hot is a great example of that where. The mechanics are so interesting that when you move, the other people move towards you and you can like kind of do the matrix thing where they shoot at you and you kind of dodge the bullet. And in VR, it goes right by you like this and you can track the bullet as it goes past you. And it's super immersive and it's so cool. And it, just, <laughs> it lends a new twist to, to gaming, which is, I think, you know, hopefully more people can experience it. And like, I remember my son playing Half-Life Alex and of course in Half-Life, You'll be in an area and all of a sudden a head crab will jump on you and you grab, he'll grab you. My son would scream like bloody murder. You'd be so scared. This thing would grab him. <laughs> like that's how much you fall into these worlds and it's, you can't help it. You, you know, you put on the helmet and it, the weight of the helmet disappears <laughs> because your senses are just being, you know, activated by all these things around you. It's amazing. Yeah, I appreciate the Super Hot reference because that's a game that I really like to watch. And so when I watched Super Hot, I was like, 
it, mm-hmm. This is really interesting because, first of all, the play style is great. It's super immersive, even for a game that looks like a few little shapes, polygons or hexagons or whatever. Then I really thought about it, yeah. and I was like, this is kind of like old games, but just way more advanced. Because, like, when you think about games like that, I think about this really, really old right. game called, like, Revel Arc, which is basically, like, it was, like, one of the first 3D games, and it was little lines drawn that created a 3D character, right? A 3D ship, and you would fight. And yep. it's so interesting, because I feel like now that those blocks are just colored in, and they're people, and it's like, it's, it, but it has much better graphics. That's what Super Hot is. And and, That's and right. like some and people are thinking like it's some new game, but it's just advancement of generations of games. Yeah. So now we're on our second to last question and hopefully you enjoy this one. If I wanted to buy a retro system for my dad, would you right, recommend right. a certain So are you one talking about, our- I'd recommend you get a ColecoVision cuz you know, we're talking about VR being such a great leap in technology in uh, video games nowadays, but the ColecoVision was astounding when it came out. It was so much like the arcade, like so many other companies would say, oh, yeah, it's, our games are just like the arcade. Atari would say that about, you know, Space Invaders and Missile Command and uh, Asteroids. But, you know, you play them and it's like, cause, you know, it's garbage <laughs> compared to what you play in the arcade. But ColecoVision, you know, it wasn't perfect, but it was the very closest we got at the time to playing the arcade game at home like donkey kong that was which was bundled with the ColecoVision, must have been one of the greatest pack-in games ever because it just completely showed the strengths of the ColecoVision, which was you know play donkey kong at home and there's a little there's differences because the resolu- resolution is different but it was just so much closer to the arcade than anyone had ever seen and that's what uh, Coleco concentrated on. They knew what was going on. They, you know, they couldn't lock up the really big arcade games because they would all be either, you know, Atari was making some of the best arcade games like Missile Command and Asteroids. So Coleco couldn't lock those up, but they went after all these other sort of second tier arcade games like Ladybug, like um, Looping, like uh, Cosmic Avenger, you know, Berserk. I think Berserk was Atari though. But anyway, they locked, you know, Coleco locked up all these arcade translations for the ColecoVision, and they were amazing. They were so, like, Adventure was a, a game I used to love playing in the arcade by Exidy, and Coleco did a did a Venture port for their ColecoVision, and it was amazing. It was so close. Just, it was squished a little bit because the resolutions, it's uh, vertical, sort of horizontal instead of the vertical aspect you get in the arcade, but it was still amazing to play, and so... My recommendation is to get a ColecoVision because it's a lot of fun. It's got some great arcade games. And, uh, yeah, that's what I would recommend. Yeah, I've actually heard uh, about ColecoVision, but we've never really seek to get one. Maybe Mm. we will now. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, we do have a lot of fun with the retro games, though. And I I think that with the Atari that we already have, we we still have a ton, Mm -hmm. ton, ton of fun with it. We we just, me and my dad have a lot of great memories with that. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we do get the ColecoVision, we'll have a ton of fun with that, too. So here is our final question. Um, Do you have any final thoughts on the .eaters.com? It's uh, a pretty in-depth history of these games. It's not a glancing over of, you know, just dates and and creators and stuff like that. I get really into the nuts and bolts about how the games were developed and sort of try to tell a story about, about how they came to be. 
And if they were to, you know, I have comment section on every article. So having a conversation, having people, you know, say, why don't you cover this game? Or what about this part of it? And that I love that kind of back and forth with people. So I'd appreciate that if people were to, you know, put in their two cents about the games that they read about on there. And other than that, I don't think there's anything else to be covered. You did a great job asking questions and sort of covering the whole, you know, gamut of games from early games to modern stuff. So I think you did pretty good. I don't know that I have anything else to add. Thank you, William, for coming on the show. We tend to focus on the next big game release and don't take time to look back at how the industry started. It's incredible that what started as a hobby for you is now a resource that is used by others describing the history of gaming. I'm so glad you're able to discuss your history along with the history of gaming. For all the gamers out there listening, please make sure you follow William and learn about the video game history on his website, the.eaters.com. He's also on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks for listening to this episode of A Gamer Story Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, Please share it with a friend and subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback for me, you can reach me directly at thegamestory.com. Thanks for listening.